The Craft Food Classroom is a comprehensive and in-depth five-part online, go-at-your-own-pace course that will provide everything needed to build a thriving food business. Each module includes a video, presentation, workbook, and quiz. This course teaches students exactly what they need to know to succeed in the craft food industry and avoid pitfalls and costly mistakes. Learn more at thecentral.kitchen/classroom and you can use podcast21 at checkout for 10% off anytime. Again, that code is podcast21 for 10% off. Hey, I know you're here for the podcast, but give me 30 seconds to talk about a new service we just released for anyone working in a CPG brand. Finding the perfect co-packer or supplier can be a real pain. You spend hours Googling options, texting your colleagues, asking around different Slack groups, and still you get nothing. That's why we created Fiddle Connect Consulting, a done-for-you service that does all of the hard work of finding your dream co-packer or supplier. Best of all, it's 100% guaranteed and you get three free months of Fiddle Inventory Operations software included. Interested? Just go to lp.fiddle.io forward slash FCC. That's lp.fiddle.io forward slash FCC. Now, on with the episode. Welcome to the Physical Product Movement, a podcast by Fiddle. We share stories of the world's most ambitious and exciting physical product brands to help you capitalize on the monumental change in how, why, and where consumers buy. I'm your host, Ken Ojuka. this episode of the Physical Product Movement Podcast, we speak with Tyler Merrick, founder of Project 7, a brand with a social mission to fund critical areas of need like hunger, clean drinking water, and shelter. He shares his experience about knocking it out of the park with a pet care business he started in his 20s. He then moved from that business to launch a more socially motivated brand, which he called Project 7. Tyler talks about his brand's near-death experience and how he was able to perform a brand autopsy to figure out how to revive it, which meant reducing the number of SKUs offered and focusing his company on a single product. He speaks about the lessons learned the hard way of relying too much on brick-and-mortar sales and how COVID reinforced those lessons and how he moved successfully into uh, selling on Amazon and D2C. Tyler is a really humble guy with a great brand and fantastic advice for physical product entrepreneurs everywhere. Enjoy. All right. Hey, Tyler, how you doing? Thanks for joining me. Hey, it's, um, I'm good. Thank you, Ken, for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. Hey, why don't you um, tell us where, where you're calling in from? I am based out in uh, Orange County, California. Oh, nice. Nice. How's the weather these days? Uh, it's beautiful spring here in Utah. Um, how's the weather down there? You know, it's nice. It's um, we're kind of at the tail end of our um, what you know. It's kind of a joke to say our winter season, but um, so there's a little bit of we had a little bit of overcast skies and and a little bit cooler today. But in general, it's it's been it's been really nice. Yeah, it's that beautiful California weather for sure. Yeah, but you got some great mountain air and desert air out there. It's awesome. That's a great area. 
Oh yeah, I'm I'm looking out my window right now, and it's you know this is when I love Utah. Um, it's warm, uh, warmish outside, um, but it it snowed in the mountains, and so you just see these beautiful you know white mountains, um, and everything is starting to turn green. It's it's my favorite time of year for sure. Love it. Yeah. Well, why don't we kick this off? Um, we usually like to hear a quote uh, uh, from you. Is there anything that that you could share with the audience? Uh, a quote that's been impactful to you? Yes. Um... You know, the, I, I, um, it's one that my father, um, you know, shares with me, um, has shared with me many times over the years. And, and I'm sure that he got it from someone along the way. Um, so I definitely I don't think he would take credit for it. But it's just the, the quote of, you know, for, for myself or anyone that is, pursuing, um, you know, a business and, and it, it has application beyond business. It's uh, as a parent, um, as a spouse, um, just in life. But I think it, if you're an entrepreneur, it has a really great meaning to you because it's the, to remember that the highs are never as high and the lows are never as low. Um, as you think, and, and just the perspective of, you know, sometimes you can find yourself, things are going, you know, really good in your business and, um, you kind of get that adrenaline hit and that excitement around a really great sales month or, um, a new listing or something. And, and you can kind of start finding your identity and wanting more of that. Um, but the reality is, is that that's only part of it um you know it's it's something not to find your identity in because we know that there's stuff that comes and then you you fall back down again but the lows are never as low as you think they are so even in those moments where you're so discouraged you're you know what we've all gone through in different ways with covid you can start to see some things starting to come back and 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 things that made you maybe pivot and and strengthen in your business and in your direction. Um, and so not to find your identity in either one, um, but, but to stay grounded in the middle. I like it. I like it. That's a great quote. Um, yeah. And, and, uh, any entrepreneur knows the, the ups and downs of, you know, the grind and, uh, the lows are never quite as bad as, as you think. And the highs, <laughs> you, you got to <laughs> stay grounded. You got to find the middle ground and, and, uh, and, and stay grounded to the things that really matter. Yeah, because neither one, I mean, the highs are never sustainable. Um, right. And the lows, you know, you will get through them. So it's it's just not, it's not finding your identity in either one. I like it. I like it. So, so Tyler, why don't you tell us just a little bit about yourself and your background? Um, where, uh, where, are you, where are you from? Yeah, I am, I am, I am from the great state of Texas. And, um, and I am uh, the son of an entrepreneur and, and the great-grandson of an entrepreneur who's definitely been um, in kind of our DNA for many generations and um, of just trying to make something, whether it's a product or a service, and, and, and make a living off of that. And, and so I, I grew up in a um, in in the panhandle of Texas, where not many people are from, but that's kind of 
um, most of the time when you say Texas, the reference is, oh, are you, are you Dallas, Houston, Austin? I'm, I'm up where a little town outside of Amarillo called Hereford, which is the beef capital of the world um, per capita. So there's more, there's more cows there um, per capita than, than any other place in the world, if you can wow. get your mind around that. So my house was out in the country, very unique upbringing. When I say son of an entrepreneur, that only frames a very small part of it. My family was in the pet food business. Mm-hmm. And so my home was on the homestead, if you will, where the factory was. And hundreds of employees <laughs> came to work every day. Um, and, wow. and I could see them from my backyard. I could see them from the front. It was a very unique um, environment in that sense. And then on each side of the property um, and, and the factory um, were huge cattle feeding operations. So what we call feedlots. Um, and there was, you know, 50,000 cattle to the left in pins being commercially fed to, for the beef industry. And then there was 50,000 to the right and another, you know, 70,000 behind you. So all in all, there was over 150,000 just in, in my little neck of the woods. Um, so it was a very agribusiness um, focused community, farming, uh, animal feed, uh, I mean, in, in feeding animals and commercial livestock. So very humble. My parents started, my dad started in very, very humble beginnings and, um, and just, you know, one by one over the years a little bit farther and farther and and before um you know kind of you blinked there was everything from a dry dog food facility to a canned dog food facility to treats and we made private label um which you know most most of your listeners will be somewhat familiar with that but just you know other people would come to us and 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 ask us to contract to to make their specific pet food um, or items. So we did that as well as, as make our own. So definitely um, not your average um, kind of lay of the land for a neighborhood that you would grow up in, but a, a lot of neat things as a result of that. Yeah. That actually sounds pretty cool. You, you literally grew up in the middle of, of it. So did you always think that you would, uh, you know, run your own business as well? You know, I think so. I mean, um, I'm the oldest of four kids. And so um, when when your dad's office is, you know, uh, a football throw away out of your front door um, and you're used to going over there and playing, you know, around in his office and um, just all over and being around him, I I just really got immersed in it. And when I was when you were when you were about 10 or 11 for sure my sister's by 12 but for the boys by that age you had to start working there in the summers and so you had to keep a summer job and so my friends were out you know doing normal swimming pool and stuff like that we were working um with everything from being with a maintenance crew that might be doing you know landscaping and painting fences and painting, you know, houses to um, being in uh, a factory and, and sweeping 
the floors and, you know, making sure that the warehouse, um, you know, broken bags were cleaned up, uh, even being on the line at times. And as you got a little bit older and filling up a bag of dog food or helping pack out a box of treats. And then as, as I being the oldest, um, my dad started taking me to trade shows occasionally with him as we started to get into some of our own, uh, branded items and so I just really fell in love with the idea of entrepreneurship and and so I ended up going to school and went away to Texas A&M mm-hmm. and then after I graduated came back and worked for my dad for almost seven years um, before I left to start um, my own venture so yeah definitely um, one of those things that I feel like I've, I've always Felt like I would do ran little businesses in college with a terrible student, um, but would, would do little businesses on the side because that's what I was passionate about. So definitely something that I think from an early age was something I wanted to do. Yeah, very nice. So uh, talk about, um, you know, life after um, the pet care business. Um, you, you, you left uh, your dad's business. What did you do after that? Well, man, that definitely spoiled me um, because I, when I came back to work for my, for my, my family, there was a little treat business that we had that sold to mom and pop pet stores. And I was going around, um, you know, selling those treats to the different um, independent pet stores across the country. And I'd be at these little small uh, treat shows and I'd see this kind of trend of natural pet food coming up. And so I, I went back to my parents and I said, you know, I think this whole natural pet food thing is going to be a, a trend, you know, and, and you guys, have, you're in a very unique position that we own our own factories when a lot of other people are, you know, having it co-manufactured elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Would you be open if I came to you with an idea for a natural pet food line? Would you be open to letting me potentially, you know, pursue something like that? And so they were very gracious and said, you know, if you come to me with an idea, let's take a look at it. And so ended up, you know, a little, not too long after that, kind of one of those wake up in the middle of the night, had an idea, wrote it down, started working on it, came to them with it. And they were like, this is really cool. Um, Yeah, let's give it a go. And um, which is really unique, um, you know, so I realized that that's where I, they really, you know, backed me from an early stage of going, let's, let's give it a try and, and let me take a chance. Um, but I say it kind of ruined me because it, it, it's just one of the things as an entrepreneur, it was right place at right time. Um, the, the whole thing just took off and natural pet food exploded and the brand exploded. And, um, you know, as a mid 20 year old, you can start to feel like you kind of know what you're doing um, mm-hmm. when that starts happening. Um, and, and so it was really growing at at a pretty, you know, record pace. And, um, and, and so I, I, I loved it. I loved that industry, but there was a part of me that also wanted to just, um, pursue some other, um, consumer product ideas outside of pet. And so I decided to, to transition out and I thought that that's, you know, the playbook that, had happened before with the pet food world that if I just do that in the products that I was going to go into, that the same thing would happen when I started that kind of like just 
sprinkle water over some seed in the ground and it'll explode. <laughs> and um, I, I was definitely humbled um, quickly um, and regularly of of just how difficult um, it is. And so it, it definitely just made me appreciate. I wasn't like a, when I say we were, you know, it's like one of those things that right place, right time, but also realizing sometimes some opportunities. I tell people a lot of times, you were born on third, you didn't hit a triple. Um, right. So, and I don't mean that like, it was not a silver spoon thing. I'm not a trust fund kid. Again, very humble, blue collar, you know, upbringing and, and the type of work that my family did and humble beginnings. Um, but there, because of those humble beginnings and all of those things in place, I got to come in and the infrastructure was there um, and all those things lined up and it, 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 it really took off, but you kind of forget that there was all that to begin there. That was your born on third, you know, right. Um, scenario. So that definitely, um, humbled me in, in a big way over the, over the past several years of trying to scratch out, you know, a, a living on my own as an entrepreneur and make something work. Um, but just, you appreciate so much more how hard it is when you, when you put your hand to it yourself. Right. Well, that's a, that's an awesome story. Um, let's, uh, let's, let's switch gears a little bit to, um, the company that you're running today. Um, for, for those who haven't heard of your brand, um, what is project seven and, and what exactly do you do? Well, the, the, um, when I, when I, I left, it was because I was at this real fork in the road, um, professionally and spiritually where I was trying to figure out, you know, what do I want to do with the rest of my life? And, and I was, you know, 20, I was 29 when I left, but I, I, so I was still, you know, very young to be saying, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? But I loved, I loved the pet food industry, like I said, but I had also kind of, kind of begin to loathe some of the my own some of my own doing so what i mean by that is the 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 growth and the success of the pet food brand was built around um you know this really premium indulgent pet food for dogs and cats so you know making a california roll for a cat or you know a buffalo stew for a dog um <laughs> i started to be like man i mean this is it's amazing we're giving you know quality products to these animals but I really wrestled with, you know, are there some of these dogs and cats are being better than, you know, um, someone in my own community that's down on their locker in a tough, tough position. And so I was like, um, do I do, can I do something else that could, instead of just make more products to help a Yorkie on the Upper West Side in Manhattan, um, you know, have a shiny coat? (laughs) Um, Could I, could I use those gifts? in another way that I felt like would have more purpose. And so I was, I was either going to go work at a nonprofit or a church or just get away from it all. And I, um, I ran into a, a, a guy that was coming through the town that I lived at the time and some people set us up for lunch and he said, well, do you know what a social entrepreneur is? And I said, no, I don't. And when he told me about that, I was like, wow, that's, that's what I want to do. I can put the two together and make products and then help out nonprofits at the same time and have kind of that 
mission plus work um, goal in life. And so that's how Project 7 was born, was I wanted to start a brand of products that as people purchase them, it could be an ongoing revenue stream for seven different areas of need, humanitarian areas of need. And the laughing you know, joke at myself is, is that it was too many causes, seven is too many. Um, <laughs> and, but I was, <laughs> I was passionate and trying to, you know, cover a range uh, of things. And so they were basic, when I say basic humanitarian needs like shelter and clean drinking water and hunger. The goal was to be non-polarizing issues, not red or blue state issues, but, you know, purple in that regard. Right. And so we came out with any kind of product that a retailer would take basically um, to put on the shelf that would, would find a way to generate revenue for these different, um, you know, uh, charities. And so it was a, it was a very random mix again of, of products, not, not a very strategic one way too opportunistic. So it started to have its challenges after about five years because it was, it was, they were too much like commodity type items. So like, like what, give, give me an example. Well, like we, believe it or not, we got into the bottled water business, which no one would want to get in the bottled water business. But at the time I got into it because there was a brand called ethos, okay, uh-huh. which is at Starbucks. And um, there were two guys that started Ethos, and it was a, a bottled water brand. As you bought it, it helped drill clean drinking water wells. And they had just been acquired by Starbucks as their as an internal control brand for Starbucks, and still to this day. And um, so I was like, well, I'm just going to piggyback. I had met the co-founders, and so I was like, I'm just going to use water as a fundraising vehicle. And so got into water and. We're doing things like a caribou coffee shop, which is the second largest coffee chain. And they, they put the water in all their coffee shops and then other places, airports and blah, blah, blah. And then randomly got into chewing gum and mints and then coffee and t-shirts. I mean, it was all over the place. Um, and so it really, it really had lost a purpose of a brand, except it was, it was a fundraising vehicle. So what would happen was people would buy it at some of these retailers. We actually got it in, you know, at Walmart and Target, 7-Eleven. But they would buy it and then they would just kind of move on, you know, kind of like, all right, I did my good for the day or I'm going to go back to the brand and in the class that I feel like is really the best in class, you know, in chewing gum or beverage. So we were seen as just a pity purchase um, and, and not really a best in class type product. Um, and so that's, that's the, the first kind of answer to your question of what business are you running today and how did you get started? That was project seven in a nutshell. Um, and then what happened was, is when, it, when, when it started to lose some of those, I was losing these large retail accounts. They were, you know, Hey, the product's just not moving you know, we're sorry, we think it's a great cause, but we're going to have to discontinue. You you start doing some soul searching and what I call brand autopsy and start going, what's going, what, what, how did we get here? What went wrong? And so I, I alluded to some of that um, 
in the sense that we weren't really known for something that was special or great. And we were known just more as a fundraising vehicle. And so I knew that if we were going to have a chance of surviving, we had to strip all that way and get back to the basics. So I picked the one product, which is a really strange thing, but I picked the one product that was actually still selling decent for us and where we had the most um, rapport with buyers and supply chain renewal, which was chewing gum, which is so random because nobody gets in the chewing gum business today. But I said, okay, we're going to focus. We're going to kill every product category that we've been in. We're just going to focus on chewing gum. And we're going to be the challenger brand and come out with all sorts of crazy flavors that have never been in gum before. <laughs> so the gum category has been peppermint and spearmint. Um, and if we want to have a shot of carving out a spot on the shelf, we're going to have to take a chance and do something like birthday cake and snow cone and cotton candy and the list goes on and on. And so we still kept the Project 7 DNA, still um, uh, moved, but moved the giving uh, to the back of the package. So now the front of the package didn't say like feed the hungry, house the homeless, heal the sick, which was the brand um, prior to this. And now it moved to birthday cake and snow cone and cotton candy. And then the giving story was on the back of the package. And that really reset the business. And, and we got our footing again. And we became known for all these really fun gum flavors that were alternative to your traditional gum, um, you know, brands, what they were doing. And that takes us forward to the day of that led from chewing gum into some other candy, which we can talk more about, but that, that's, that, that's how we got to here. All right. So a lot, lot to unpack there. Um, I, I want to make sure to touch on the point of moving the mission to the back of the package, you know, and even the way that, that you said it. Um, I think a lot of brands struggle with that, a lot of social brands. What do you think that that changed um, in the business and, and your perception to the customer when you did that? Well, I think that, you know, I, a, a lot of times, you know, obviously I get people that want to put implement this kind of this mission into their, into their brand. And, um, and the heart is absolutely right. You know, a lot of time, most of the time, I mean, I've been in for the doubt all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but you've got to figure out, you've got to get back to the brass tacks of consumption at the end of the day is, is really, uh, it, it is one of the most selfish actions we all, you know, take every single day. Um, it is about something that I want to consume right now for me it's it's self-serving so if you think about it when you go all right where do i want to go to lunch today if you're craving you know you know tacos or whatever and 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 you drive by a pizza place and the pizza place says stop by here and with a, with your pizza order um we'll give you know five meals into your local community not many people are going to change their their turn signal to pull into the pizza place because why? They're craving tacos. They're craving tacos. And so the reality is is that it's really hard to get people to change a behavior that isn't self-serving first. And so if you want to build mission into the product and some type of giving vehicle you have to make it, the first thing is it has to be about a really killer product. 
product that is serving a need state for some customer demographic. And the cherry on top is, is for you first, if you want to make it about the res- your customer second, can be, and by the way, we plant a tree, or oh, by the way, we give a meal. Um, but you've got to get them hooked on a product that is satisfying, whether they're a vegan, whether they're keto, whether they're um, you know gluten-free, whatever it is. And that, that flavor profile, that product has to be really compelling and a really great product that will bring them back. Then that becomes repeat purchases in a sustainable business that can start to throw off some of the giving that you want. There's too much fatigue today around, hey, go ahead and buy one of our products and, and, and you know, we're going to plant some trees. Most people just are like, I mean, there's a percentage of people that go, that's nice, I'll do it. But the majority of people are like, you know what, I just am going to buy the best product for me, the best price, the highest rated reviews. And if you end up doing that, that's great, but I'm not going to get be guilted into doing that. You should be doing that as your own as a corporate citizen. Um, so I think that's the thing that I would tell entrepreneurs is first and foremost, make a really great product. Don't not telling you to like not deny what you want to do if you've got a mission that you're passionate about. But don't don't lose track of trying to make the mission more about the product than the product first. If you want a sustainable uh, business, I, I learned that the hard way. You just have fatigue. It's kind of like the analogy I give a lot of times is it's like if you run into you know a grocery store or a CVS or a Walgreens on a Friday and you're checking out and they at the, on the on the kiosk on the prompt you put your debit card in it says hey would you like to donate a dollar to Children's Miracle Network. And so maybe you feel kind of guilty, uh, you know, sure, I'll give a dollar. Um, so you, you, you give, you add a dollar to your purchase. And then Sunday you have to run back in there for some band-aids, you know, for, for whatever reason. Right. And you're checking out and the dollar prompt comes up again. What do the majority of people do when they get to that prompt? You skip right past it. Because why? I, I think it's some of that fatigue. You yeah, know? well, it, I already did it. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's what happens is people kind of go, no, man, I already did it. Or I did it at another store across town. This is not what I was looking for here. Like if I was in a giving mode, I would go find a giving outlet to give it to. So this feels a little bit like a tax. It feels a little bit like a social pressure. And don't get me wrong, Kroger and CVS and those places happen to, you know, raise a fair amount of money kind of passing the plate like that. But when you when you put it into a brand structure, it's not it, it doesn't have the sustaining power, um, if if that makes sense long term, because it starts to have fatigue of I just want a really great product, and if you do this, great. But I don't want to feel like I got to do this to to unlock some kind of giving thing. Yeah, understood. What what are some brands that come to mind um, that are doing this well? Do you think? Well, it's changed. It's changed a lot. I think these things run in cycles, like like fashion. You know, like fluorescent <laughs> colors are back from the nineties. You know, and tie dye. <laughs> yeah, big big pants are back in in, in style. Apparently, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally. So I think we're in a little bit of a valley um, right now of how many brands um, 
that it's that it's a a, a thing, quote unquote. Um, it's happening in the it's happening in the background, but I think more of it is resonating with brands like Pen. And this is Tyler's humble opinion. Ben and Jerry's and um, and uh, Patagonia, where it's 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 not necessarily buy this to make this giving thing happen, but they're brands that are using their their brand as a platform to speak about social justice issues, um, the environment, um, you know, trying to pursue legislation to protect certain public lands. They're 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 fitting a certain tribe of people that support that brand because not necessarily, you know, it, it planted three trees, but they know that this is the kind of brand I want to buy and support. This is what I'm about. And so I, I want, I want to support them. You know, you back up six, seven years ago and you had the peak of like a Tom's um, shoes where it was very, you know, big, like, oh, cool. I've never been able to give a pair of shoes to someone. Well, yeah, we could I would go out and, and we have plenty in our closets. We can go and give them out. But Tom's made this really simple model that was just going to take care of it for you. And it was this, you know, outsourced giving thing. So I was like, felt really cool. I bought this pair of, you know, cool shoes and somebody somewhere got a pair of shoes because of me. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a good person. That was the, 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 the peak of it, I think, five or six years ago. Um, and there's been other ones that have been, you know, social brands that have tried to make that happen. In the food space, there hasn't been a ton. Like there's little ones here and there. Um, Kaizu does a little bar that does meals back. Soulful Project makes an oatmeal that does meals back. Um, you'll see like Back to Roots. It's a gardening company, you know, went out gardening in schools. But none of them, they're, they're, they're very small niche um, brands. They haven't reached a really big scale. Divine Chocolate has a slave-free chocolate. Tony's Chocolonia is slave-free chocolate. Mm-hmm. But people are buying those first and foremost because it's a really great product, um, especially on the chocolate ones where it's taste profile preference. So I would say that I think we've moved from a transactional giving um, kind of storm of brands that we had doing stuff like that um, to activism brands that are, you know, like I said, Ben and Jerry's and Patagonia that are out there using their platforms to, to lobby certain issues and speak up on things. But that's kind of the thing I think people are more into right now that they want to support more than a transactional um, giving brand. Yeah, interesting. The the other thing that you uh, that you talked about is is how you know you looked at Project Seven. You did a brand autopsy, and uh, I wanted you to describe that a little bit for you know those who may have a product that just isn't moving or they've been at it for a little while. You know what 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 goes into a brand autopsy? What are you looking for, and how do you know when it's time to to maybe pivot a little bit? Man, it's hard, and and sometimes you you know you're so close to it that you don't want to accept that there's you know, that the product has died. Um, the brand has, you know, has died. Um, that there's, or it's in, it's in a really bad state. So, but you, you know, you're, you've got enough for those founders out there, you know, entrepreneurs hearing this, that you, you're not denying it when you're laying your head down on your pillow at night, you're waking up, 
you know, you're getting an email on a rejection of a current, you know, product or sales on Shopify or down again, you know that there's something not right. But if you can't get there on your own, don't be afraid to reach out to, um, you know, an impartial spectator, um, you know, whether it's a mentor or someone in your space and, and say, hey, I need some help here because obviously what I'm doing is not working and I, I need to be honest with it. And so for me, um, you know, that autopsy w- looked at it from a number of different ways and, and, and there was just, it was a combination of kind of getting there, um, certain things on my own, but then other people helping me out, whether, and when I say help, other people helping me out, that sounds a little bit shiny. That can also mean rejection. <laughs> you know, <laughs> It can be painful is, is what you're saying. It can be very painful. Yeah. Um, you know, when you're, when you're being deleted from a planogram, you know, nationally at Target, um, that's, that's, you gotta like, why, what, what happened here? Um, and sometimes the buyer will give you feedback and sometimes the feedback is, is good. And sometimes the feedback's not good. Um, and, and, and so what I mean by that is if, if you've got a buyer that's, you know, worth their salt and really cares and, and wants to give you some constructive feedback, um, then that's good. But if you've got one that's just, you know, distant, and just says, yeah, it just wasn't a good product. You know, take that with a grain of salt and, and keep digging. Just like in an autopsy, an investigator would keep pushing for more facts and, and go deeper and, and start to, to ask other questions. And, um, and, and you can try again with that buyer to get some feedback. You can try the channels. But so for me, when we did our autopsy, it was, um, um, you know, how did we get here? And, and so you kind of unpack that. Why, why didn't it work? Um, and um, what, what should we have done? What would we do different if we went, if we were going forward, you know, and those were, you can get much, you can kind of keep naming some other uh, bullet points, but I think those three really help you um, start to unpack a little bit of, what's not right with the brand. And, and so what's really important, Ken, is that at the, at the, at the end of that autopsy, you really have to try your best to say, I, I don't have to save this product, or I don't have to save this business. Um, and that's going to sound counterintuitive to most people. The, the best thing you can do, though, in that scenario, if you really are dealing with a brand death or a product death, is you have to have enough discipline to step away from it and say, um, it, it, may, it, it, it may be over with. Um, and the ideas that I have to save it may not be the ones that would work for it. And so I'm also, at the same time, going to... Um, give myself permission to explore what life would look like if that happened. Would I go get another job somewhere else? Uh, what's the other product that I would launch and why? Um, how would I fix it? And give a little bit of room to breathe there. 
Um, that, that was the best thing that I can tell you that saved my business back in the day was when I took off the pressure that I had to save this, even with the savings in it. And, and I told myself like, no, I have to fix it. I have to pull it up. I have to make it happen. When my wife and I talked and it was like, no, we've put a lot into this. So it might not be the best idea to put more into something that's already a bad thing that's broken. It's got a problem. We need to have permission here to be honest. And maybe we don't save this business. Maybe we have the funeral and we move on. And so, I started interviewing for other sales positions and exploring what life would look like um, if I did not try and, and turn the business around. And that gave me, that took a lot of pressure off. Uh, but at the same time, it gave a little bit of space for me to, to dream in between those conversations with some of those people I was looking at at other jobs. And, and that, it was out of that, not as much pressure to save it not a much pressure that I have to make this work, that the idea came for the crazy gum flavors and this unique gum package that had never been done before in gum, which was a soft pouch that fit in your pocket and had a resealable zipper. And and so when I brought that to one more trade show, my wife and I both were like, all right, here's the deal. We're bringing it to this trade show. You're you know, sends me off on the plane and we both say, this is it. Either this trade show, the market responds to this, you know, reinvention of the brand and this focus on gum. And if they don't, um, we're not going to try and, and make this happen. We're going to pursue some of these other um, professional employment, you know, opportunities. And went to that show in New Orleans and and had just an incredible response and retailers that had bought the brand in the past saying, yep, this is what it needed. We'll get behind it. We'll put it in. And so we ended up, you know, relaunching it, but um, that that's an encouraging thing that I would tell people if they can is try, try to create that space so that, you know, they're not so too close up to it that they can't see, you know, objectively. Yeah. Yeah. And, and of course, you know, everybody listening to this is going to think, well, easier said than done, right? Like this is a very tough thing to do. Um, but I think it kind of goes back to your quote that you started off with, you know, it, it's just remember those highs and, and lows, you know, aren't quite as dramatic as, as they might feel at, you know, at those different times. And you have to create that space, like you're saying, in order to be able to th see things clearly and see a path forward. Yep. Okay, let's let's talk a little bit about that. So you went to this trade show and um, and you you had a lot of interest. Um, what was it enough interest that it was all of a sudden you know you knew for sure you had to move forward with this or you know some some of the the things that I think are really tough you know for a business um, you know facing these types of problems is sometimes you still have a little bit of interest. But it's not like overwhelming, you know, it's not a clear yes, um, but but it's maybe a nudge in the right direction. And so you you kind of have to see that. What, how, how was it for you guys? Was it was it like a slam dunk? It was like, OK, this is obvious. This is the way forward. Or or how did you approach it? You know, I, it, I, going into that trade show, I wasn't completely blind. I had tested out, you know, with some trusted advisors and a couple of buyer friends and brokers. So I knew there was a little bit of smoke 
around, you know, the, the retooling of the brand. So that going into that, going into that show, it was, I felt like there was, we had something unique. Um, so I, I would, in, I would encourage in, in the um, autopsy, you know, as you start to rebuild of what you think is going to be your, your step out of that to, to then test that theory out with, you know, some different customers, industry personnel, you know, to see if there's legs to what you're, you're doing so that you can feel good about potentially going down that, that new path. So I think that's an important part in all of this. And then um, I would say that if you don't, you don't, you don't, if you're getting pushback on those things and you're still not there, it can be aggravating, but um, just go, go back and, and, and get back in, you know, to the work table and, and put it up on there and start working and taking that feedback and, and come back again to that group and, and see if, if you're getting closer. Um, and, and that you can't just, I would just say in this particular scenario, you can't just go with an entrepreneur's gut because an entrepreneur's gut, you know, maybe starting something that can, that can work well. And because there's never really a science to it, an entrepreneur is crazy enough to go, I'm going to make this work. But when you're dealing with a failed business and you're dealing with, you know, a failed product, you, you do need to get some more stakeholders to help you see, is there, you know, is there some teeth behind what I'm trying to, to do again here? Um, so if you're getting pushback, don't just bear down even more and be like, no, they, they have it wrong. I'm going forward with it. You know, that maybe that works one out of a hundred times, but it, it, that's a dangerous path to take. Um, so I, I, I would, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. No, and I, and I think it's great advice. But I think for an entrepreneur, the thing is, I mean, look, I, I mean, sometimes a, 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 a person that's an entrepreneur starts a business, you know, creates a product and they're still using that same one today, 10 years later, and it's built on it and it's grown. But there's a lot of entrepreneurs that started with one. It had to pivot into something else. And then the market changed again and they had to pivot again. Like I have friends that were in the soap business that during COVID moved all their business into sanitizers. Um, and now sanitizers, there's billions of overstock. So they're trying to give it away and they've moved back to soap. Um, and, but there were some of them that were like, we want to be in sanitizers long-term. There's a really good business here. It wouldn't have happened without that kind of challenge. For me, I've, my next pivot was we were making chewing gum and we had all these customers that were like, Hey, you make these crazy fun gum flavors. What if you made them into candy, like a really fun organic gummy bear and licorice and lollipops. So we started to do that, but a couple of years into it, we started being like, man, you know, organic, it's, it's expensive. Um, it's, it's a small market. It's still the same amount of sugar. It's still the same amount of carbs. Um, is this long-term enough of a, of a market to build a business out of? And is this something that is going to be beyond an impulse purchase um, where a lot of times candy is like, I just, I feel like this craving right now. So I buy what's in the store, the convenience store. 
we're going to be in a really tough spot because we're three times the price of conventional. So our odds go down considerably in an impulse purchase. We need to build something that's more e-com ready, that's more need state to feed a certain lifestyle. And so we started reinventing our candy to be low sugar, keto friendly, plant-based because we knew that we needed to create a product that wasn't so dependent on brick and mortar. Um, where a buyer gets thousands of products presented before them and goes, I only have so much space, guys. I'm sorry, I can't put you in. Now we live in a day and age where you can put that item on Amazon or your site and go connect directly to customers that are looking for that type of product. So that made me pivot again um, and try to survive as an entrepreneur. And now that's, our bread and butter and that's where the majority of the business is at and has grown a ton. If I hadn't have done that, here's a terrible thing that would have happened. Before this year, chewing gum was 50% of my business. Well, during COVID, guess what took a 35 to 40% dive as a category? Huh, that's interesting. How come? Well, people quit wearing, people quit chewing gum wearing masks, um, social distancing, um, you know, it wasn't, I'm not dealing with people as often. I don't need, I'm, I'm, I just ate lunch. I'm running this meeting. I need to freshen up my breath. I'm on this flight. You know, I'm, I just got out for the flight. I want to freshen my breath, whatever. As a category, you know, if you look at the gum business, sugar-free gum being 4 billion or so and change in the U.S. Um, and you look at it being down 30 to 40% as a category, you know, that's, $1.5 billion in a year gone wow, um, yeah. just from people changing a behavior. So um, that, that sometimes you're just going to have situations as an entrepreneur that you have to respond to the market and figure out a way to survive um, and pivot. Um, and and that's, that's, that's what we did. And, and it's, it's not easy, but I think every entrepreneur needs to be thinking about that. The market moves so different today that, got to be agile enough to to respond to it right and so um, what was the impact of covid on the on the rest of your business oh i don't want to sound like a a a sad story but i mean it was it was awful you know Mm -hmm. it was Mm -hmm. it was um the worst business year i've been in business um you know it it was it was three things that hit us we were down 40 45 percent um as a company and start all the same headcount, cost, you name it. Um, we got hit in three ways. The first one I just told you about, just chewing gum. The second one was, I was too, our business was too reliant on what is called, um, you know, the front end checkout area of a store. Right. Um, and that's, that's the last, per, last purchase point um, for people. We sold a lot of gummy bears and items up there that during COVID, people just quit shopping. Um, they were either just doing panic buying and buying their stuff in the grocery store and lining up six feet, going through the conveyor belt and trying to get out. Um, they weren't lingering there and going, let me grab a couple other things here and toss them on the belt. So that, that whole front end was down. Or they're shopping online, right? They're not even in the yes, store. That's exactly right. Instacart, Amazon, that was the other one. And then for the one, this is a crazy thing that people don't think about. Um, for the ones that were in store, 
you know, for the retailers, they were really struggling to stay in stock of, you know, toilet paper, milk, bread and eggs, the house, Naples. And so they made a, a, a predetermined choice that they were going to sacrifice in-stock levels on the front end to allocate those people resources to make sure that those bigger items stayed in stock. So even if you did have people shopping in the front, they were, they were very um, shop. They, they were very, the inventory was very low to even non-existent because people quit, they quit restocking those shelves. Are you tracking with me? Yeah. Um, yeah. And then the third bucket was, I had a very good business in what is considered, considered alternative retail. Um, so what that means is AMC movie theaters was a great customer, nice mm. size customer that I had worked for three years to get our candy in. And the first year we're in it, COVID happened. And COVID happens, yeah. And they shut down. Um, and then REI, Michaels, World Market, all these places that were deemed non-essential retail. Um, and and as a result, um, I had all of this inventory that I was sitting on that I didn't have a home to go to. And so I had to write off tons of product, you know, um, sell it for 10 cents on the dollar if I was lucky. So it was, it was, a, it was, it was a very difficult um, year. I, I, I still know people had it worse than we did. Obviously, the restaurants and a lot of those non-essential retail and, you know, there's, you know, a lot of challenging ones, but it was, um, it was definitely, it hit us in a big way, 40, 45%. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it's interesting. Um, I was in a sprout, a sprout market the other day and saw your product in there. And then I, I I'm trying to think where else I saw it. Yeah. Um, it's a great customer. What about Walmart? Are you guys in Walmart? We have some gum in Walmart in the back of the store. We have our candy at Target at the front end. You may have seen it at REI. No, I think it was probably Target then. Then I'm just trying to think of where where I was. Okay, so you you've you've got really good distribution. Um, you know, I've, I've seen you in, in a lot of places. Looking at the store locator on your on your website, you know, you guys are kind of all over the place. Um, what what about the future? What about going um, getting out of COVID here and, and moving forward? Um, what what are some of the things that you're excited about? What are the plans? You know, what's going on? I'm really excited about the brand pivot. Um, to we phased out all of our full sugar organic candy and moved everything into low sugar um, and keto friendly candy. Mm -hmm. And I'm excited about that because um, I think that it, it's not, a, it's not a diet trend. Cutting sugar out of diets is, is something that's going to be around for a long time. And I think the excitement around making really great candy, which we spent two and a half years in innovation to come up with ours. And, and it really is great. It is great. Thank you. Um, I, Thank I have you. to say that. And I'm, and I'm not just saying that because we're talking right now. Um, my, my wife loves it. My, uh, I have a 12 year old boy who loves your gum, you know, um, I just you. think you guys have really great product. I really appreciate that. I mean, it. and, and that I, it's, um, you know, it's, 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 it's a labor of love and not always do you land with every customer, but I think, that's when I get it most excited about. And then um, 
finally, instead of trying to be so many things to different people, and that's um, another mistake I made as an entrepreneur and, and, a, and a brand owner, mm-hmm. um, you know, when people would say, well, who's your product for? And, you know, who's your target customer? And I'd be like, well, everyone, you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> and and um, so now having a more focused effort, um, it, the, the neat thing is, is that we live in a day and age where you can take that, you know, directly online and you can build up that customer base and you can sell directly to them and scale. And it's not that I'm against brick and mortar, but it is going to continue to be challenging for um, challenger brands at brick and mortar because you have two, two locomotives, you know, that are, that you're going up against. One is major, major brands um, with crazy um, ad dollars. So, you know, what they spend with those retailers buys them a lot of shelf space and loyalty on, on the planogram. And they're going to be able to promote and have really great velocities. And the other locomotive is the rush by retailers to build up their private label, um, their own brands. Mm-hmm. And so who gets pinched in there is, you know, the challenger new brands. And so, you've got to figure out a way to to have another way to get your product, you know, to customers. And we, weren't, we, we did not have a very serious online business for so many years because we were an impulse type product. Um, just really was too dependent on hopefully getting in that strike zone at the end of the purchase shopping time at the store that at the end of that cycle at the checkout, you would see our unicorn gum or champagne gummies or something and be like, oh, that's fun. I want to toss that in here. Now we're going, now let's let's create a product that people want to buy in bulk and keep in their pantry and and keep in their backpack um, because it it, seats a, it, it, it it takes care of a, it meets a certain lifestyle need state. And so um, building up D2C and, and, and our low sugar innovation is what I'm, I'm most excited about. Well, yeah, me too, because uh, I've been I've been low, low carb for a long time. I've been uh, keto for almost four years, you know, and uh, one of the struggles is finding, you know, a good a good treat that isn't going to send your blood sugar spiking, you know. And, and yeah. so me and me and my wife love your product. Um Thank well, Ty- you. Tyler, you know, we've been talking for almost an hour. Um, just wanted to, to move on to the, the quick fire round um, and then and then we'll wrap this up. Um, just tell me the, the, the first thing that comes to your mind as I ask you these these next four questions. Um, name one tool or a resource that has that's helped you um, in your career. I would say um, Evernote. It sounds uh, Evernote is. Um, an app that um, is, you know, on both platforms, but um, I use that every single day um, for a number of things from project management to journaling to, you know, ideas, self-care, you know, thought cycles. Um, it, it's helped me out personally for my family, things, you know, with my children um, you know, I've got tons and tons of, of journals and notes and it goes with me wherever I go. So that, that has been a fantastic one. Yeah. Awesome. Love Evernote. 
Uh, what, what's a book that, um, that's been really helpful to you? You know, I absolutely uh, devoured Shoe Dog. That was awesome. That was a great right? book. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think, you know, especially if you're an entrepreneur, you're just like, you're, to hear someone tell some of the crazy stories um, and, you know, just the setbacks and, you know, the different, um, all sorts of uh, left turns and right turns. I love that one. Not because like everyone's going to turn into a Nike, um, but just that Nike didn't just show up one day as this behemoth, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and they went through a lot of amazing, you know, startup challenges. And, and so just hearing stories like that, I, I also loved outliers. Yeah. Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah. Um, just, I think, I love I love to learn by story, um, and so hearing those different stories and scenarios and and observations, yeah, I just the data behind it. I just I eat that kind of stuff up. What is uh, one piece of advice that you'd give your twenty one year old self? You're not such hot crap. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I would I would do kind of like what King Solomon said in Ecclesiastes. Um, where he, you know, still to this day would be the richest person, you know, Bill Gates, uh, Jeff Bezos, all of them added up together and they still wouldn't, you know, reach his, his material wealth mm-hmm. and, and him looking back at after all that he had and just saying, you know, it's pretty much vapor. Um, I would, it would be hard for the 21 year old self to hear it, but just, just the, the, the wisdom to say that, it, the the accolades of building a successful business or some material gains um, have a very very short life shelf life and and the things that will bring you much more fullness are family and people and, and faith and so don't don't get caught up in trying to hit certain numbers because that number will always move once you hit that number you'll want even more. Um, so that's what I would, I would try to borrow some of that wisdom from him. And, uh, what is a, a brand or, um, who's an entrepreneur that you're keeping an eye on, you're following, you like what they do? Um, who would that be? There's a, there's a, there's a couple of them right now. Um, I, I think that, um, in, in the, in the beverage, um, space, there's a brand called Olipop um, that's doing like a, you know, reinventing soda um, with kind of some gut health and less sugar. And they've got a very passionate team and a fun brand around it. And they're doing a really great job. And mm-hmm. I think, I think they'll be an interesting one um, to watch in, in the beverage space. Um, I think on, um, the food side, um, you know, there's anyone who's continuing to move inside of, um, you know, like Siete's done an incredible job on the on the grain free Hispanic uh, market. You know, from chips to you know uh, queso to Mexican wedding cake cookies, um, they've done an amazing job of taking some of those classics and bringing them forward, and they've just they're they've they're 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 
they're passionate, their family has worked really hard, um, done a great job. Um, and, and those would be, those would be a couple, um, in, in the food and, and beverage space that, I mean, Oatly has done an amazing job. That's not, that's kind of Captain Obvious now, but I've, I've bought their products for a lot of years. Right. I think the oat milk, I think oat milk is still undervalued at how big of a category it's going to be. Um, just because it has one of the best mouthfeels and, um, experiences for a not for an uh, alt dairy product and and oats are a much easier product to grow than you know almonds long term mm-hmm. uh, so i'm fascinated by that whole alt milk channel and then anyone who's just cutting out sugar um across across food um in, in different spaces i think personally i've I watch it like a hawk, um, and so I've seen tremendous benefit from it. Uh, I know it's probably longer than you you want to hear, but those those are a couple off the. Those are awesome. That's exactly what I wanted to hear. Um, so let's uh, let's wrap this up. If, if if somebody wanted to to get a hold of you, what's the best way to to contact you and and keep up with what you're doing? You know, I would definitely connect on LinkedIn. Um, you know, that's. From an entrepreneur standpoint, that's an easy place to connect and obviously can message there and, you know, have a conversation. Our brand, you know, is, is simple on Instagram and socials is at Project 7. Um, and, and so that, you know, if you want to sign up for a newsletter on our site, products, that sort of thing. So those would be, um, those would be the, the best ones that, to, to connect from here for sure. All right. And uh, any parting uh, words of advice for entrepreneurs out there that are um, grinding it, um, grinding it out in the physical product world right now? You know, I would just tell them that, you know, yeah, you're just coming out of COVID and it seems, you know, it's a tough, it's been a tough time. And there's, it feels like there's never been more brands than there has been, you know, today. Mm -hmm. But man, there's never been a more awesome opportunity to not just have your shop um, constricted to your main street in your town and your zip code. Um, You have the worldwide web at your fingertips. Find your tribe, find your niche of product and launch online there. Don't get hung up on getting listed at a retailer. If you have a killer story online and have great velocities, um, you'll have your opportunities to do stuff in brick and mortar. Um, and so just that's an exciting thing. The barrier to entry, you know, it used to be you had to get into a 7-Eleven if you wanted to get exposure by customers. You had to get into Whole Foods. Um, you, you don't now. You know, there's, there's, you can just bypass the whole thing. So it's an exciting time to be able to launch a physical product um, and do it online and just, you know, yeah, there may be some fatigue on the amount of ads people get, but think of other creative ways to disrupt and and get people's attention. But just be encouraged that this is still, this is such an awesome time to launch a physical product. That's awesome. All right. We'll end on that note. Hey, thank you, Tyler. Appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. This was great. All right, buddy. Take care. All right. We'll see you. The Physical Product Movement Podcast is brought to you by Fiddle. To find out more about Fiddle, 
and how our industry-leading inventory ops platform is giving modern brands and manufacturers full visibility into their inventory and operations, visit fiddle.io. And then make sure to search for physical product movement in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Fiddle, thanks for listening. Hey everyone, my name is Taylor Howe and I'm the marketing manager here at Fiddle. I want to jump on real quick to tell you about an incredible free resource that we put together for CPG brands. It's called Fiddle Connect. It's a curated database of over 3,000 co-packers and suppliers. You'll get websites, phone numbers, locations, categories, and more, all in one place. It's a must-have for any CPG brand, especially in the food, beverage, or nutraceutical space. And again, it's 100% free. To get immediate access, just go to fiddle.io forward slash connect. We are constantly updating the database and we promise you're going to love it. It'll save you time and headaches by helping you get to suppliers and co-packers faster than ever. So again, just go to fiddle.io forward slash connect to get free access today.